You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, you'll uh, notice that we are in the same series that we started three weeks ago now uh, called Under the Influence. It's actually a verse-by-verse study through the book of Nehemiah, but we're going to take a detour this morning and uh, do something a little bit different. James was actually supposed to be at the men's encounter this weekend and fell ill uh, Thursday and uh, was not able to come, and so um, either way, he was not intending on be here, being here this morning, and if you were here last week, you heard the uh, announcement that we made that after the Nehemiah series, James is going to be rolling off from uh, teaching on a weekend and week-out basis, and given the reality of that, I wanted to wait for him. I decided to take a break from Nehemiah. We started it together. We're going to end it together, and I wanted us to do the whole thing together, and so uh, we're going to spend some time in Jeremiah this morning Instead, And I, I kept it under the same series because we've been talking about how God uses us and various people throughout human history to be influencers for the kingdom. And while Nehemiah is a very great example and certainly a relatable example of that for us, Jeremiah is also a pretty incredible example himself. Now, they're very different people. Nehemiah, as we've talked about, is a regular, ordinary guy, which is what makes him so relatable. He's not too different from you or I. Uh, Jeremiah, on the other hand, is one of these so-called major prophets. And so um, maybe hard to connect with him on that basis. Some of you may be thinking, what could I possibly learn from a man like Jeremiah? You know, I'm not a prophet. I'm just a regular person. And that's a fair point. But maybe... Jeremiah is more relatable than you think. When you break down Jeremiah's life, you begin to figure out he's not too much different from us at all. He's, he's not a superhuman. He isn't perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. He's not a man of great wealth. He's not a man of great power, at least on his own. The reality is, is Jeremiah was just a regular person like anyone else. God just used him in a very powerful way. He's still an influencer for the kingdom nonetheless. And, and so there's a great deal that we can learn from him as we read his book. And it's contextually pretty fitting for us, actually. It makes a lot of sense biblically to take a detour into Jeremiah, because if you remember the timeline of Nehemiah, a lot of the stuff connects together. If you remember, we've talked about how Nehemiah takes place in the third phase of Judah coming back into Jerusalem after Babylonian exile. So, so remember back that Judah was sacked by Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar comes in. He takes uh, the Jews in Jerusalem into captivity. The temple's destroyed. And for 70 years, they are there. During that 70-year period, Babylon is overtaken by the kingdom of Persia. And at some point, after about 70 years, King Cyrus of Persia uh, is, is worked on, his heart is worked on by God, and he begins to release the people back to Jerusalem in phases. Phase one began with Zerubbabel going to rebuild the temple because the temple had been destroyed in that initial sacking. Uh, what is it? 60 years after that, uh, Ezra comes in and reestablishes the law in phase two. Once the temple is rebuilt, the law is now needed. And so Ezra comes in to reestablish the law. And then about 13 years after that, phase three begins under the leadership of Nehemiah. And he is charged to go back to Jerusalem 
and rebuild the wall to protect the city uh, because it is very vulnerable from outside nations. Now, that's when Nehemiah takes place. All of that, everything that happens in that entire span, the return to the land, the rebuilding of the temple, the reestablishment of the law, the the rebuilding of the wall, even the 70 years in captivity, all of those things were prophesied by the prophet Jeremiah. And so in many ways, you can't really read Nehemiah and fully understand it without having some exposure to Jeremiah. And so it's very fitting, I think, this morning that we jump into Jeremiah in the middle of a series in Nehemiah. A lot of ayahs, isn't there? Um, there's a lot of ways we could dissect Jeremiah. There's a, there's, I mean, you could do an entire series on, on the book of Jeremiah. It's a much bigger book than Nehemiah is. And uh, certainly we don't have that kind of time. We have roughly about 40-ish minutes now. Uh, one of the more important relevant big ideas for our time this morning that I want to pull out for you from this book is this right here, that influencers push people to live in the real world. I'm going to say that again, and we're going to talk about this a lot this morning. This really is the crux of what we're going to be discussing. Influencers push people to live in the real world. Now, what do I mean by that? If we're being honest... Humans, we as humans have a tendency to do anything in our power to avoid reality. Am I right? Anything we can to avoid the real world. And case in point, there is no better example than the year 2020. A pandemic strikes, one that we have still not fully recovered from, and the world as we knew it changed virtually overnight. Everything was disrupted. Everything in our lives was disrupted. People were shut in their homes. They were unable to leave. They were unable to go to work. Many of them lost their jobs. They were full of fear, both from the virus and economic fallout and and, and political turmoil. I mean, there was all kinds of problems happening in 2020. It, it, It created, it curated the perfect environment to want to escape. Escapism became an all-time high in 2020. Again, case in point, let me give you some statistics just so you don't take my word for it. Netflix. Let's talk about Netflix. You're all familiar with it. I know the numbers. I know you're all familiar with it. Uh, Largest influx of new subscribers in one single year in 2020 in the history of the company. So in 2017 to 2019, uh, they were climbing. They were climbing and they were doing well. In fact, their numbers were at that point at an all-time high. They were averaging between 2017 and 2019, 26 million new subscribers a year. That was the average, 26 million. Do the math. What is it, $12.99 a month? It's a lot of money. And that's just new ones. That doesn't include existing ones. In 2020, that went up to nearly 37 million. 11 million more decided in 2020 Tiger King, man. Let's do it. Right? We're all talking about it. I've still never seen it. Honest to God, never seen it. Now, why? Why do we do this? Because it's an easy escape. It's an easy escape. It it is when the world becomes difficult, when circumstances become tough, Netflix provides an easy opportunity to tune it all out and escape from reality. This was true for Netflix. It was true for virtually every streaming platform there is. Uh, There were especially high subscriptions, this is interesting, in countries and in states with the highest restrictions. So it seems like the higher the social restrictions, the more we want to escape reality. Video game sales saw a 27% increase in the year 2020. Highest they've had in like, like several decades. Half of the population of the world was on social media by 2020. 
Now, this is scary. It's also kind of comforting to me, if I'm going to be honest with you. That means that half the world still has a chance. <laughs> if, you are wa- if, if you're watching at home, you're probably on social media, but, but don't get on it if, if you're not already. I could go on, but I think the point is clear, right? That, that we go through great lengths to escape reality. We don't want to be reminded of what is, what is happening in the world that is bad. I don't want to know what today's problems are. I don't want to think about my own issues. I want cat videos, a binge-worthy TV show, and literally anything to distract me from any of it. But here's the deal, and this is a truth. I want you to get this. Nothing valuable takes place when you escape reality. Nothing. Nothing valuable happens, takes place when you escape reality. When you escape reality, you get a momentary payoff in that you don't have to deal with whatever difficult thing is in front of you right then. But... Here's the catch. It doesn't make that difficult thing go away. And in most cases, more often than not, that difficult thing becomes even more difficult the more you put it off. And so influencers like Jeremiah recognize the danger of escaping reality. And they are always calling people back to the real world to face reality even when it is ugly because it's the only way that life actually gets better. So I titled our message this morning, How to Live in the Real World. How to live in the real world. Because this is a skill that we desperately need. We all struggle with it. But before we jump in, let's talk about who Jeremiah is. Who is Jeremiah? Uh, He was a priest uh, from Anathoth that lived in the final decades of Judah prior to the exile. So he was there in Jerusalem before Nebuchadnezzar comes in and uh, does his thing. He likely became a prophet around 627 B.C., And his calling is an interesting one. His call as a prophet is an interesting one. Jeremiah 1.4, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, and God said, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So God comes in and says to Jeremiah, Get ready, Jeremiah. You're going to be my prophet. This was my plan before you were ever born. When you were in the womb, I called you. I set you apart. You will be my prophet chosen one. And I love his response because it is, again, very relatable. Verse six, but I protested. (laughs) Oh no, Lord God. Look, I don't know how to speak since I am only a youth. He's saying, I'm not qualified for this. I'm not even old enough for this job. See what I mean by relatable? He's not a hero. And God tells him, I chose you and appointed you as a prophet. And his response is like, no, I don't think I'm your guy. Very relatable. But we get a pretty clear picture of the kind of ministry that Jeremiah is going to have. Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, Then the Lord reached out his hand, touched my mouth, and told me, I have now filled your mouth with my words. This is one of the things that sets the Old Testament prophets apart. And by the way, they are different from New Testament prophets. They're not the same office. I would argue that the Old Testament prophets are uh, equivalent to the New Testament apostles, both of which offices have closed, right? Uh, So God has put his words in Jeremiah's mouth. Verse 10, it says, See, I have appointed you today over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and demolish, to build and plant. In other words, Jeremiah's ministry is going to include delivering messages that are bad, that are very difficult to hear, that, that tear down, destroy, demolish. These are, these are bad terms. But it's also going to include some life-giving messages as well, things that build and plant. They're, they're life-giving. There's imagery of both here in his ministry, life and death, good and bad. 
And that is very important for our time this morning because both of these concepts, both of these realities are real in the real world. We face them in the real world. And so if we're going to learn how to live in reality, we have to be willing to accept both of them. The question becomes, how do I do that? How do I do that? How do I live in the real world? We get three really helpful lessons from him. We're going to be primarily in Jeremiah 29 this morning. So if you want to flip over to that part, we are going to be just shy of everyone's favorite coffee cup verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. Uh, I am doing that series uh, at some point, and so we will talk about coffee cup verses, uh, but we're going to go one through 10 this morning. <clears throat> three helpful lessons. We'll walk through each of them. Very practical. Here's the first one. You have to learn to embrace your circumstances. Embrace your circumstances. In other words, we're not interested in what could have been or what could be because neither of those concepts are anchored in reality. Jeremiah pushes us to look at our own circumstances for what they are, both good and bad, and embrace them all. And don't take my word, uh, look at, at Jeremiah 29. Now before we jump in, I'll give you some context here of what's going on in this chapter. Jeremiah has already at this point prophesied about the Babylonians coming and doing everything that they are going to do. And by the time we get to chapter 29, the exile has actually started. So Nebuchadnezzar has already come in. He's already wiped out the temple. Everything has already happened. The Jews are being led back and are now in Babylon. Look at verse 1 of chapter 29. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining exiled elders, the priests, the prophets, and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. So Jeremiah wrote a letter to this group, okay? That's the context of this, of this chapter. They had already gotten knocked down by Babylon. The temple had been destroyed. city was in ruins. They're now in chains in Babylonian exile, just like Jeremiah said would happen. And chapter 29 is a letter then from him to these people who are now in prison in Babylon. Now, this is, correct me if I'm wrong, a great time to want to escape reality, is it not? It can't get much worse than this for them. Everything you've ever known has been stripped away from you. And the God that you serve, that you believed would keep you from any bad, has allowed it to happen. This is a worst-case scenario for the Jews in exile. So the task to embrace your circumstances is very hard. But look at what he says to them. Just read it, and then we'll, we'll pull it apart little by little. Verses 4 through 7. He says, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all of the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city that I have deported you to. Pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. Now, listen... If I'm just being honest about this, if, if I'm in their shoes, if I'm an Israelite in exile, there's a big part of me that is probably thinking, God's not going to allow this to continue for, for too long. You know, we're, we're the Jews. We're his chosen people. And, and yeah, maybe we were a little off track. Maybe there, were, there was a little bit of idolatry going on. Maybe we were a little bit disobedient. But, but listen, God is not going to allow this to continue for too long. He loves us too much. We're his chosen people. I mean, I'm just being honest. That's how, that's how I would think. That's where my mind would be. I would be day daydreaming every day. I'd be just imagining the Lord supernaturally raining fire down on Babylon and, and our triumphant return back to the city and everyone cheering and rejoicing and it'd be a huge celebration. And listen, 
none of that is reality. It's a mirage. It's fiction. It's make-believe. And so Jeremiah comes in and he says, guys, come back to the real world. You're not going anywhere for a long time. Now, I want to emphasize something here because I think we get this wrong very often, that he is not simply telling them to come to terms with their reality. He's not simply telling them to face their reality. Whenever you think about escaping reality, usually the wisdom that is given to you in those moments is something like, you need to face the facts, right? You need to come to terms with reality. You need to, it's time to get real. It's time to face the music, right? And, and, and again, there's, there's nothing wrong with that sentiment, but that's not exactly what's happening here in this passage. He isn't calling them to face their circumstances. He's calling them to embrace their circumstances. Facing the facts is just a simple acknowledgement of what is happening. That's not what Jeremiah is saying. He's saying, commit to it. Embrace it full force. I mean, look at, again, verses five through seven. What are their circumstances? Captivity. What does he say to do? Verse five, build houses and live there. That's not, that's not what I want to hear. Build houses and live there. In other words, take the time. Find the materials. Work hard. Make a place and call it home. Live there. It requires commitment. There's a permanence about this, right? He says, plant gardens and eat their produce. Planting a garden takes time. It takes a lot of time. Some of you make posts about, like, the gardening that you do, and, and I'm like, I, it makes me cross-eyed. I'm like, I cannot imagine knowing that much about a tree. You know what I know about a tree? It's a tree. Like, I don't know what else to say, but it's incredible. It takes time. There's no such thing as part-time gardening. You know what you call a part-time garden? A dead garden. Yeah. Verse 6, he says, find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give your daughters to men in marriage. Multiply. Start a family, in other words. Get married. Have kids. In other words, stop daydreaming about being in Jerusalem. You're not going back there anytime soon. That isn't the real world. Embrace your circumstances here. Build a home. Plant a garden. Have children. You're going to be here for a long time. Now look, we're not Israel. Uh, surprise. Uh, we're not in Babylonian captivity, but we do face our own circumstances, sometimes of which are very difficult. And so we have to learn to embrace them. Some of you are facing a failing marriage right now, or a marriage on the rocks, and you're doing everything you can to avoid what needs to be done to fix it. And you just keep pretending that it's going to work out. If you just leave it alone and ignore it, it'll eventually take care of itself. Listen, that's not going to happen. That isn't the real world. That's a mirage. That's not, that's not real. Rather than running from it, the reality of it, Jeremiah says, embrace it. Settle down in it. Commit to it. In other words, put in some time and effort. Settle down. Give thought to it. Materials, supplies, effort, time. That translates into get into a freedom group at, at just a base level. We just launched several of them, one of which is Lies Couples Believe. It's a great couples group. We have a whole host of other groups that are available as well. And as it, as it happens, by God's good grace, we had inclement weather on Wednesday, which means week two hasn't happened yet. After week two, we cut it off. So the good news is, for those of you who have procrastinated, who have been avoiding reality, you can sign up right now. And you're still well within the time frame. 
What is preventing you from doing that? I'm going to give you full permission right now. Get your phone out, get on the Church Center app, and sign up for a group. I would rather you pay attention to that than what I'm saying for the next couple minutes. Only the next couple of minutes. <clears throat> Join literally any of them. Just pick one. Play roulette. Just point. Any of them will be fine. It's a, it's a great place to start, right? That's how you embrace your circumstances. You go at it. You commit to it. Try finding a couple that can mentor you, an older couple who's been married longer that can mentor you. There's tremendous tremendous value and wisdom in that. There are couples in this church who have been married longer than I've been alive. How, it's so cute. I can't tell if that's a compliment to them or a a jab at myself. There's so much power in that. Listen, they can say things to you that your spouse can't and vice versa. Wives, you, you can say something to your husband over and over and over again, get him in a room with an older couple and have them say it, and he'll be like, that's a great idea. <laughs> I know, because I'm that guy. You are. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Confirmed. They can tell you things that you're not willing to hear from other people. It's a, great, it's a great thing to do. If things are really bad, get into counseling as an additive. Now, let me just say that, as additional support. This is a mistake that I think a lot of people make is they run right to counseling and they neglect all these other things. Every one of these things have value in and of themselves and it is different value. And so what are you doing? If you're going to live in the real world, if you're going to face reality, you have to embrace your circumstances. Stop pretending that things are okay or that they're going to get better. They're not. They're going to get worse the longer you put your head in the sand. So commit to it and embrace it full force. Are we having fun yet? Secondly, Jeremiah is going to tell us that we have to learn to resist opposition. Resist opposition. This is where it really gets fun. Living in reality, as it turns out, not the most popular thing in the world to do. Uh, The problem is, is that when you begin to embrace your circumstances in a very honest manner, it puts pressure on people around you to do the same. It's easier to escape reality when everyone else is also escaping reality, right? When everyone else is trying to embrace their circumstances, it's much more difficult to escape. And so when you start doing this, when you start really going at it, full-on commit to your circumstances, it is going to bring about opposition in your life from some people in your life. For the Israelites... It, were, it was the, the prophets, the prophets of Judah, who were false prophets. Uh, these were worthless individuals. They did not tell the truth. They were not sent by God. Uh, they only said what the people wanted to hear. And Jeremiah warns the Israelites in exile, resist them. Pay no attention to them. Look at verses 8 and 9. It says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares Yahweh. Here's what was happening. False prophets during this time in in the exile were actually trying to incite a rebellion in Babylon. So what they were doing is they were saying things like, hey, if you will all band together as the people of God and start a revolution here, God will use you to overthrow this evil king. He's done this for years with with the people, the, the Israelite people. He'll do it here as well. You just got to get together and you got to start a revolution 
and he'll begin to work. Earlier in chapter 27, verse 9, Jeremiah warns them. He says, don't listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, or your sorcerers who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. They were, they were trying to kind of amp them up to rebel. And Jeremiah is saying, they're lying. God didn't send them. Resist them. Pay no attention to them. So get this. The prophets, during this time, they're not only unwilling to embrace the reality that they face, which is you're in exile for the next 70 years, but, but not only that, they're trying to pull others out of reality as well. So they're, they're unwilling to face the facts, and they're also trying to pull people away from the facts. And Jeremiah is saying, you have to resist the opposition. Don't listen to their lies. Stay in reality. Now, there are at least a couple of ways this plays out for us. There's a couple of different ways this goes on in our lives today. So let's make the application here. We find opposition primarily in two places in your life. We'll start with the first one, external opposition. And by external, I mean the people in your life, likely that you are close to, that are going to have a problem with you beginning to embrace your circumstances and work on yourself. In other words, live in the real world, mainly because they don't want to live in the, the real world. And there's a lot of ways that this plays out. Um, I, I want to spend a little bit of time talking this morning about something that I've never talked about before uh, from the, the stage, really from any teaching platform. Very relevant concept that has come up, I think, popularly in the last three or four years, I would imagine, but it's a very old term. Uh, it's a term that we call gaslighting. You're familiar with that term, show of hands, gaslighting. It's an interesting origin. So if you know my background, I have a linguistics degree. I love the etymology, the study of etymology, the origins of words. How do we get the words that we get? And so I did a little work this week because I was curious, where did this term come from, gaslighting? And it has a very interesting origin story. It comes from a 1938 British play called Gaslight. Uh, it was actually turned into a movie in 1944 starring Charles Boyer and Ingrid Bergman. And in the story, it features a married couple, a man by the name of Jack Manningham, who terrorizes his wife over and over again throughout the course of the story, a woman by the name of Bella. And so what he'll do is he'll do things like this. He'll hide household items and then tell her that she misplaced them. He'll, he'll flirt with other women in front of her and then deny that he was doing that. He'll isolate her away from friends. And, and what happens is, is uh, she begins to think that she's losing her grip on reality. She thinks she's going crazy. And, and at some point every day in the evening, the gas lights in her apartment where they live would start to dim and flicker. And he would even deny that was happening. It's all in your head, sweetheart. You're, you're just losing your grip on reality. And so as she is trying to kind of figure out what's real and what's not real, she's confronted by another individual who's a detective who comes to her and tells her about the apartment above them. He tells her that the apartment above you was owned by a woman, a very wealthy woman with a lot of jewelry, and she was recently murdered, we believe, for her wealth, and we believe the murderer is your husband, Jack Manningham. Now, at this point, she's obviously shocked by that and probably a little relieved because the guy is just a total tool bag, right? <laughs> and she goes and follows and under, she sees, she uncovers that at night, he was going up to her apartment to search for the jewels and the riches that he believed she left behind after he murdered her. And in order to find them, he would turn the apartment's gas lights on and it would cause all the other gas lights in the building to flicker and dim. Thus, 
the gas lights are kind of the thing that put him out, and they end up catching him, and it's a happy ending. It's all good. Gaslighting derives its name from that, right? The practice of doing something, committing an action, and then spinning a false narrative about that thing with the intent of making someone else feel like they're going crazy. And it's abuse. If you just call it for what it is, it's abuse. Let's get practical. We'll talk about... Um, couple different ways this works out. Uh, definitely a form of external opposition that, that many of you have faced, that some of you will face in the future. We'll talk about a more extreme case first, a, an extreme way that this plays itself out. Uh, let's, again, let's use the example of a, a failing marriage. A woman comes to a point where she decides she's ready to embrace her circumstances. By the way, it's normally the woman who does this first. Men are stupid, and we don't want to admit what's going on, and normally this is how it goes. So she comes to terms with her circumstances, the fact that her marriage is a disaster, her husband is not a nice man, and they need help. And so she begins to address the problem. She signs up for a group. She begins to seek counseling. She does all the things that she's being told are wise that will help the marriage, and he does not like any of that. He doesn't want to live in the real world. And so opposition begins. Now, in extreme cases, in really extreme cases, he'll fly off the rails, he'll verbally assault her, uh, maybe even physically assault her. In really extreme cases, you may even see some sexual assault that happens. But then check this out. This is what he'll do. He'll spin it completely differently after the fact. He'll say things like, I didn't call you that. Well, no, but that isn't how that happened. I didn't hit you. What are you talking about? You told me you fell down the stairs, remember? I didn't force myself on you. You said we're, we're, married, we're, we're husband and wife. This is gaslighting. This is abuse. She begins to question her sanity. She, she thinks to herself, maybe he didn't hit me. Maybe, you know, maybe, I, maybe I did agree to be with him that night. Maybe I was the one being really argumentative. You know, maybe I'm the problem here. Maybe that's the issue. It's abuse, men. And if, and if you're doing this at home, you need to repent. You need to repent before God. You need to repent to your wife. And you need to get help. You're not getting away with it. Like, I know, I, listen, I understand. There's a, there's a part of every human being that thinks that I, I can get away with this one thing. You're, you're not getting away with it. I may not know about it. Your friends may not know about it. The Lord Jesus knows about it. He sees it. He understands it. He's not a good guy to get on the bad side of. Now, that's an extreme way it plays out, right, in, in abuse. And it does happen. It does happen. It's a very common thing. But, but let's talk about more subtle ways we do this. Gosh, this is going to get at so many of you, <laughs> including myself. Parents, we do this with our children, right? When kids come in and they say, I'm hungry, which, by the way, they're always hungry. There's never a time they're not hungry, except for when they're sleeping, except for when it's dinner time. Yep, Jessica's right. Then, they, then they're full. <laughs> Funny how that works. So kids come in the room, and they say, I'm hungry. You'll hear parents sometimes say things like, you're not hungry, you just ate. And that's gaslighting. Yeah, you're, you're, you're spinning a narrative that's not true, right? And you're, you're convincing them of something about reality that isn't actually in reality. Listen, any time we pull people away from reality, we become a part of the problem, big or small. And that's obviously a very small, you know, kind of funny example that we shouldn't do, but we're all kind of guilty of it. Jeremiah is saying, if you're going to live in the real world, you have to resist that. 
You have to resist. You have to learn to resist external opposition because not everybody is ready to live in the real world. And they're going to do anything they can to make you fall back into this make-believe world where everything else is easier and they don't have to deal with any of their problems, including lie to you to slow you down and stop you from making any kind of progress. It's way more comfortable here to live in fantasy land. So it's difficult, but it's necessary. And, And understand this, people. It may mean the end of some relationships in your life. If you continue to embrace your circumstances and you resist their opposition, it may mean the end of some relationships in your life. And that is okay. It's okay because those relationships are not anchored in the real world. And so in a way, they're not even real relationships. Peter, in uh, 2 Peter, he he lists several negative character uh, attributes of individuals that are bad. They're negative. 2 Peter 3, 2, he includes the term abusive And there's a lot of other things in there that are misleading, that are misdirecting, abusive. And he says in verse 5, very clearly, avoid them. Avoid such people. Have nothing to do with them. Shake the dust off your feet. Cut them out. So that's external opposition. But we also deal with a second kind, which is, as you might guess, internal opposition. Sometimes when you embrace your circumstances in your life... It becomes incredibly overwhelming. In fact, I would say most of the time, it becomes incredibly overwhelming, especially in the beginning, because it's new and it's difficult and it's heavy, right? And your flesh, that inner voice inside of you, will begin to tell you, this is too much. This is, this is too much. I don't want to do this right now. I don't want to do this right now. We see this a lot in freedom groups. This happens a lot with people when they sign up for their very first freedom group. And, and it doesn't come off as aggressive as I'm making it sound. What will happen is people will join one in an effort to embrace their circumstances where they are, and they immediately begin to, to get uncomfortable, and that internal opposition begins to kick in. And this is what it sounds like. This is the voice of internal opposition more often than not. I don't know that I really have time for this right now. You know, I want to do this work, but I'm just too busy right now to fully commit. You have to resist that. You have to resist that. That's a lie. You watch Tiger King, all the episodes. That's a lie. (laughs) I'm just being honest, man. Look, you have to resist both external and internal opposition if you're going to live in the real world. It's hard. I get it. It's hard. When you begin to embrace the reality of where you are, when you begin to commit to where you are, it's difficult. There are people who are not going to like that, including you inside, your flesh. So you have to learn to resist both the external and internal opposition. And last, we have to learn simply to be patient. Again, no one wants to hear that. Look at verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. You see, God promised the Jews all along 70 years. Not forever. It's not going to be overnight. But it's not going to be forever. It's going to be about 70 years. It's a long time. It requires a lot of patience. We we, we talked about last week, I I made this this point, that, that we are incredibly impatient individuals, right? 16 seconds for a web page to load incorrectly, something like 22 seconds at a stoplight. We are the worst with patience. And luckily, we have the Holy Spirit of God as believers indwelling in us that produces the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is 
patience. Galatians 5 includes that in that list. And so as you are embracing your circumstances, you're really settling into the difficulty of your reality, you begin to resist external and internal oppositions, we have to pray to God that the power of his Holy Spirit to give us patience. And then we practice it, and that reinforces it, and it strengthens, it grows within us. You have to have it. Because here's why. Your circumstances are not going to change overnight. Some of your circumstances are marriage-related. Some of them are addiction-related. Some of them are character defect-related. Some of them are just basic, regular old sin-related. And you know what all of those things have in common? None of them change overnight. None of them. Not overnight. Not over a weekend conference not over a 13-week period in a freedom group. It takes time. It takes time. But if you'll continue one day at a time, you'll resist opposition along the way, there is eventually a payoff that comes to you. You become a healthier version of yourself. You have healthier relationships. You have healthier boundaries with people. You have a stronger sense of identity in Christ. But it takes time, and it requires a lot of patience. It's easy to escape. It's easy. It's the easiest thing you can do. In the world today, there are, there are an innumerable number of things that you can choose right when you leave this service to escape from it all. And it's all at the tips of your fingers and a little phone most of the time. And you've got to understand that nothing valuable happens when you do that. Nothing valuable. Every second that you spend avoiding your circumstances in front of you will only make the real world an even harder place to deal with when you finally get the courage to do it. The best time to face your circumstances was like 10 years ago, right? But the next best time is right now. It's right now. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Jeremiah reminds us, embrace it. Go all in. Build a house there grow a garden, start a family, put all of the time and effort you have into where you are right now. And understand that when you do, it's going to make some people in your life really uncomfortable, including yourself more than likely. And you're going to have to resist the opposition that they put up, both externally and internally. And it's going to take time. And so you're going to have to be patient. You're going to have to trust the Holy Spirit of God to do his work in your life, you're going to have to trust that all of this is going to make a difference, that there is a payoff. It's just not going to happen overnight. Can we do that? Listen, one of my prayers for City on a Hill is that we would be a church full of real people, right? Real people. But in order for that to happen, in order for that to be true, we have to be people who live in the real world. If we don't, we're not real people. We're not, we're not really there. And so my prayer this morning is that you would do exactly what we're talking about. And, and whatever your circumstances are, that you would begin today. Don't put it off. Let the Lord transform you from the inside out. It's going to take time. It's going to be the best and most painful and most rewarding and most awful and most incredible journey you've ever been on. <laughs> Both good and bad, remember? Tearing down and building up. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for a timely message out of the book of Jeremiah, a very practical one, uh, one that uh, I, I believe that every person can take something away from, and, and I pray, God, that, that we would do that, that we would, that we would not be people who live in, in an alternate reality, but that we would just embrace where we are right now, good and bad, and go all in, Lord. We, we believe that the, the power of your indwelling spirit um, will equip us with everything that we need to do this. And so I pray uh, for every person in here, whatever their circumstances are, that you would lead them in the right direction uh, to begin making the, the wise choices uh, to becoming a, a real person that, that embraces reality. I thank you for the ministries here at City on a Hill, uh, w- without which it would be much more difficult to do the kind of things that I'm talking about here. And so for our facilitators and for the people who are um, constantly sacrificing their time to pour into others, uh, I thank you for them. I pray you'd give them an extra measure of energy and uh, wisdom in every group that they lead. And and that all of these groups that are beginning uh, week two on Wednesday, I pray, God, they'd be bigger Wednesday than they were last uh, week uh, because many here would sign up. And I pray that uh, they would be fruitful and that that people would um, stay the course and, and see this thing through, that we would become stronger, more spiritually and emotionally mature individuals at the end of that. God, we also do, as uh, we prayed in the beginning, uh, pray for uh, specifically Ukraine and Russia and all the people there, the leaders, all the way down to just the citizens. God, there's uh, unspeakable things happening, and, and uh, we know that you are uh, sovereign over them. And so, God, just bring uh, peace and comfort to those who are afflicted. Uh, Bring reason to those who are unreasonable, Lord. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you all. We'll see you next week. There are inviter cards on the seat, by the way, for the women's conference. So take one and invite someone.